1: Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Alicia, and this episode features Sunsara Johnson. Sunsara is an author, inspirational speaker, entertainment industry veteran, and CEO. Now, if I started by giving you the highlights of Sunsara's resume, which is full of recognizable entertainment networks and names, you would immediately think that she entered this industry the way most people do as an intern or young 20 something with the right connections or the right major. But Sansara never actually made it to college, not because she couldn't get in. In fact, she was offered a four-year scholarship, but her mother refused to let her go. Yes, you heard that right. But that is only the tip of the iceberg of Sansara's childhood, which was marred by alcoholism, abuse, and even religious mandates. Mandates she was subjected to until she was disfellowshipped after becoming pregnant with her daughter out of wedlock. Sansara fought through being excommunicated from her family and homelessness to build a life for herself. Eventually, she found her way to the music industry, working as a manager for some friends, and later made the move to television, working as a temporary administrative assistant in integrated marketing at Spike TV. Sincera managed to turn that temp gig into a formidable entertainment industry career. Her work now spans across companies such as Atlantic Records and MTV, along with credits on top-rated television shows on ABC, NBC, Fox, BH1, Own, and More. She's now the CEO of her own company, Amass Digital, a digital advertising agency that has worked with companies such as iHeartMedia, CBS Digital, and Town Square Media. As part of the founding team of a YouTube multi-channel network, Sansara played an integral role in launching and growing audiences on channels such as Lives with Meredith Vieira and Jay-Z's Life and Times. Now listen, Sunsara has had such a storied life and career, we just let the conversation flow. And we've now split this interview into two episodes. So here is part one and be on the lookout for part two next week, when we'll also be dropping a giveaway that you do not want to miss. So without further ado, please enjoy. Sunsara, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am awesome. It is my honor to be here today. I'm very excited. You came highly recommended with our last guest who had a two-parter, which doesn't happen often. My homegirl, Tacoa Hash, who came on the show and gave uh, an amazing two-part interview. So she recommended you. And we know coming from her, any recommend- recommendation from her is gold. So I'm very excited to be speaking with you today.
2: Well, Tacoa is the bomb.com and I refer to her as my business, bestie. I love her bunches and God brought us together. She's amazing.
1: So let's get into your story. Who is
2: Sunsara Johnson? Um, I'm just a regular person who loves God unashamedly and is on a mission to obey him in every area of my life. So we're going
1: to get into uh, your devotional, which I'm really excited about because I saw so much of my own story uh, in there. But since you mentioned God and your mission to obey him, let's start with your upbringing, because, you know, when I talk to people who may have had traumatic experiences intertwined with religion, not God, but religion, oftentimes that can drive them away uh, from relationship. So let's just start from the beginning. Tell me a little bit about how
0: you grew up.
2: Wow. So I was born to an alcoholic mom and a heroin addicted dad, and um, they were both in prison when they met. And as a, as a toddler, I should say in my my very early formative years, I don't remember my mom teaching me about God. My earliest remembrance of God is it raining one day. And I heard in the other room, my mother was being sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. by a a friend of hers who had brought a friend to the house. And she had put us down for a nap. Our room was across the hall from hers. And my brother and my sister, only two of us at the time, were asleep. I couldn't sleep. And I remember writing a letter to God. I don't even know how I knew God existed, but I remember I wrote a letter to God and I remember it started with dear God. And I I honestly don't remember what I wrote. I do remember that I was able to go to sleep. And when I woke up, there was a rainbow and I didn't know the significance of the rainbow. I'm literally talking. I was no more than seven or eight years old and I didn't know the significance of the rainbow then, but I do know that I felt what I can describe as an adult now as peak. Um, So during that time of my life, my mother was dating my stepfather who was an alcoholic. And so I saw domestic violence on a regular basis. I heard it, even if I didn't see it, I heard it. And it was on both sides. I remember him coming home from work And my mom dragging him down the stairs and we dragging him down the stairs and taking the money out of his pocket. Those are very vivid early childhood memories to me. But I also remember being the first family to move into this project neighborhood and being bussed out to go to a white school. And I was a straight A student. And so school was a different world for me. School became like escapism for me. And I was teased and I was bullied in school. And then when I came home, I was bullied because apparently my mother struggled with depression and was suicidal. And I was led to believe that I was the reason she was suicidal. So a lot of trauma in my childhood, a lot of physical abuse. And so but by the time in my early teens, we had relocated from Connecticut to New Jersey and my mother found religion in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm just going to say what it was, in the form of Jehovah's Witnesses. And that added structure to her life. That added value to her life. And that introduced me to studying the Bible. And that introduced me formally to religion. And so because I'm an avid reader and because I've been a loner, pretty much, the religion kind of worked for me initially because I was isolated. I wasn't allowed to hang with the worldly kids in school. So my friends were only the Jehovah's Witnesses. But I found the dysfunctionality within that. And I saw hypocrisy firsthand in my household. And I would read the Bible and see these things in the Bible and take them very literally and not understand how they would relate in, our, in, in my household, in my personal life, and in, in the lives of my friends. And there were, there were, there were a couple of incidents that really laid the groundwork for like the rest of my life as far as God and religion were were concerned. The first was um, my stepfather's sister and her family were traveling from New York to the South for a funeral. They were going to drive. And I must have been 12 years old. I only told this story a couple of times. They must have been, I must have been about 12 years old. And so they came to our house and they spent the night before they left. And I had a dream of a car accident. And these two were the only two in my stepfather's family that made me feel welcome as a family member. And I knew they were going to die. And I couldn't explain to anyone how I knew they were going to die. And so while they were there, I started mourning them like it was the last time I was seeing them. And I knew I couldn't say it to my mother because I knew what I was being taught was that was demonic. You can't know these things because that's demonic because God doesn't tell you those things. But I had this really at at that age, I started developing really strong feelings and intuitions and things. And sure enough, the next day they were in a car accident and they died. Wow. And let's. Go ahead. And and then the second thing that impacted me maybe a year later was there was a friend who was my best friend as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. And we had the same family dichotomy of stepfather, siblings, you know, that, like same type of family. We were in the same grade. In fact, our birthdays are literally a day apart. She was born October 11th. I was born October 12th, the exact same year. And we both had the structure where we went to the Kingdom Hall and our last name was one thing and we went to school and our last name was something different. So, mm-hmm. So we were, we were bonded on so many levels. And then one day I came home and my mom said I couldn't speak to her anymore. And I, I couldn't, she didn't tell me why. And I found out she was pregnant. And they, the person that they were saying she was pregnant by, I knew there was no way he was the father. I mm. knew there was no way he was the father. And so I couldn't speak to her. She wasn't in school that often because I gathered it was now as an adult it was a difficult pregnancy. And so when the baby, I, I, I knew, I, I remember going to a meeting and I remember the baby being born, she was disfellowshipped. And so was the young man. And I remember going to a meeting and I remember them saying we needed to pray for this baby because Jehovah's witnesses don't believe in blood transfusion. And I remember saying we need to pray for this baby because this baby has such and such illness. I've always been an avid reader. I'll read the dictionary because I've been a loner, you know, an introvert. I'll read the dictionary. And we had Encyclopedia Britannica back in the day. So I remember looking up this disease, this thing that the baby had, and it was only by incest. That told me everything I needed to know and why the doctors were pushing for a complete and total blood transfusion. And nobody ever discussed it with me. No one ever wanted to talk about it. And her father was the presiding overseer in our congregation. And nobody ever wanted to talk about it. So the way those two things impacted me was I don't need religion to have a relationship with God. And just because these people are hypocrites, it doesn't mean that God is not who he is. God is still who he says he is. No matter what's going on in your life and no matter what other people are doing, it doesn't invalidate God. So I was never angry at God Religion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's unpack um
1: these prophetic gifts slash discernment uh that you had at a young age. And what I find fascinating is I grew up in the Pentecostal faith. So mm-hmm. in, in the Pentecostal faith, if a child uh had those giftings, you would have been elevated. You would have been praised for that. Now, granted, they've got their own issues with gender and all this other stuff. Right. Um, right, but right. that would not have been seen as something that was associated with demons, right? Or, or the devil. So can you help me understand a little bit more why that, that gifting is what we would consider a gifting is frowned upon in Jehovah's Witness
2: and in, in that area? I, okay, so I'm going to say what I know based on my knowledge at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because apparently there, um, my mom since passed away, but when I would try to have conversations with her, she would always say, refer to some new information. So I'm going to, because I'm respectful of whatever you believe, I'm going to say what, based on what my knowledge and what my experiences have been. And for them, they point to anything that, that looks of foretelling or of knowing or of knowledge as coming from the devil, because God doesn't want you to know those things and because God does not communicate directly with us. And in fact, oftentimes within the structure of that religion, we were taught that certain things we needed to take to the elders for them to go pray about, for us not to pray about. Very patriarchal um, society and and way of thinking. So while they encourage you to have a relationship with God, that that was just seen as demonic and you know um sorcery and fortune teller and the crazy thing is i remember going to and it's funny looking at myself as as an adult now and as a child i remember going to um fortune i remember going to like fairs with my family and whenever we would go like near a fortune teller i would just get so terrified like so scared because you know demonic and every time they saw me Every time, no matter where I encountered one, they would say to me, "You know, you know, and it would blow my mind and I would never share it with my parents, anybody, because I felt like, "Oh my goodness, they think I'm one of them. that must mean i'm demonic and and i think I think even within Pentecostal and a bunch of different religions, I also think that sometimes people don't understand what that gifting is, and I'm glad that you use the word discernment because it wasn't until That happened in my teens. It wasn't until my 40s, honestly, that I accepted the gift. Like, there were things that would happen that I would know when I started writing notes to myself because, you know, I thought I was crazy. Like, how do I know these things? How is it possible for me to know these things? And I don't want to be demonic, you know? And what happened was I did a 40 day fast one year in April. And during that time, Right after the fast, I had like seven of my closest friends come to my house and it, during that forty days, I had to accept the fact you have this gift it's not going anywhere; it is what it is, and you have to learn how to how to how to deal with it and it's not something this is one of the honestly one of the i've maybe the only time ever. If an interview that I've ever talked about it, because I don't tell people, because then there's this expectation, and they're like, "Oh, what does she think about me? What does she know?" I, you, I just, you know. And so, when I start, what what made me accept it was during that forty day fast, there were things that would happen. Um, I had gotten laid off from my job. I actually got let go from my job. I had surgery. That's a whole nother story. But it was time for my rent to be paid, and I didn't have the money, and I was going through a divorce at the time, and. I met this woman and and I remember calling my landlord and I was never late on my rent. And I remember calling my landlord and I said, I'm going to have the rent for you on the 10th. And as soon as the words came out of my mouth, I was like, God, why did I say that? And I remember I was in a season where I was saying things and I didn't know why it looked like I just innately knew them. And I didn't know why I was saying the things that I was saying. And sometimes I would have conversations with people and they would say, how do you how do you know that? And I had, I started, re- during that 40 days, I started reflecting. I read an amazing book by Cindy Jacobs, The Voice of God. If anyone is struggling in that area, amazing book. I still refer back to that book. That clarified so much for me. And then I started remembering things from when I was a child, you know. And at the end of that fast, I invited my friends over because I felt like I needed for my friends to know, some of them to know. And Two friends in particular, God had told me something about. That, that some things had been revealed to me. And at the end, one of them stayed overnight. And she said to me, She's the only one that decided to stay overnight. She said, Has God said anything to you about me? And I said, Yes. And she said, Can you tell me what it is? I said, Can I pray about it? And then we need to pray together in the morning because it was heavy. It was heavy. And more importantly, I didn't want to say God told me something and not be right, not because of me, but because I didn't want to do anything against the will of God. I didn't want to malign God's name. So she spent the night and the next morning we woke up and we went up to the upstairs room in my house, the upper room, <laughs> I have an upper room, here too, to the prayer room in my house, the room I had made into a prayer room. And afterwards, I said, I said to her, and this is the first. And only time it has ever happened to me this intense and in and in this way. I started talking to her and things were being revealed to me in the moment. And I said to her, God revealed to me that your weight loss issue has to do with your sexual abuse as a child. She had never told me this. So understand that was something that I did not want to share with somebody. And like it's it's hard to say. She hadn't told me, but yes, I, I knew. And she looked at me, her eyes got big. And that was all God had told me. That's all I knew. And when her eyes got big, it was just like a flood of information flooding into me. And mm-hmm. I said, your mother knew. It was your landlord. Like I came with very specific details. And I said, wait, the reason you and your sister don't have a good relationship is just just a product of rape? Like these deep, deep things she never told me. And the more I talked, the more she started bawling, like just crying, crying, crying. And I honestly don't remember all everything that I said. And when she stopped, when I stopped, we just cried for a while. And I said to her, I just need to know one thing is there anything that I said that was not true? I said, you're not doing me a disservice by making me think I have some gift. I said, because this is a burden to me. Like, this is not, you know what I mean? I said, I just need to know if anything I said is not true. And she got herself together and she said, every word of it is true. Mm. And I know it's from God because I know I've never told you. And the reason I've never told you, I know I never told you, is because I forgot it was bottled up until I went to counseling and she had just, she'd just gone to a therapist. So mm-hmm. that was that was eye-opening for me in so many ways. It made me realize I need to be careful in my life. Right, I have a responsibility. And it wasn't about, oh, let me tune into this and see what I can figure out and what I can know about people. It wasn't that. It was more of, this is a responsibility that God has given to me and more about how to not abuse it, how not to try to use it for my benefit, how not to harm people with it, knowing, knowing when God wants me to know something for me and not for everybody else, mm-hmm. knowing what he wants me to do with the information and knowing that sometimes he doesn't want me to do anything with it. He just wants me to know and not questioning. And the hardest part is that when I don't know the why, sometimes I'm not sure if it's from him. So I've learned to journal. I've learned to, to, to write it down and to do, do a date stamp. If something is laid on my heart about somebody I know, and it's always, it's never been strangers. It's always people that I know or someone whose presence I'm in. Takoa, who referred me to this, sh- this show, is an interesting story. A mutual friend introduced us and um, I had another book at the time, Dear God, Passionate Prayers in 140 Characters or Less. And with that book in particular, I gave away more books than I sold. I-, I just literally gave away that book. And whenever I give away a copy of that book, I always write it, not because I'm autographed, but I'll write a prayer. I'll ri- I literally write, say, God, what do you want me to write? and I write it. And I met Tocowa, and in the moment that I met her, I wrote something in that book. To this day, I don't remember. I never remember it after I write it. I don't know what I wrote in that book, but it, whatever it was, it impacted Tocowa so significantly. She felt like we need to be connected for the rest of our lives. She mm-hmm. said, you don't know me. Like, Like, that literally is what I needed at that time. So, Having that background as a Jehovah Witness and now having this discernment thing created a, an internal struggle in me for years. And I didn't set foot in the church. and I didn't go anywhere. I stayed in my house and I, I became engrossed in the Bible. And I've read, I can't tell how, you how many different translations because my scripture memory was limited to the New World Translation. And when I would quote scriptures, it would be limited to that, which didn't lead me to full understanding. And so now I've read so many translations that I can't, I, and concordances, and, and so so many different things. And now my relationship with God and the Bible is such that every time I read it, I, I can't count how many times I've read it from beginning to end, but every time I read it, I see something different. I see something new. And at first I was crazy when I saw these things and I would share them with my friends and they're like, oh my goodness, I never, you know, I never, never thought of it that way before. And so that's why I feel called to write about, about, about the Bible and why it's such an integral part of my life, because God is an integral part of my life and I'm not a religious person. Like, currently, I am not a member of any church. There are some churches that I frequent. I got to be honest, I don't know if and when I will ever be a member of a church. I don't feel called to start a church. I'm not a pastor. That's not what I am. I just believe I'm a person who's called to live the way God wants us to live. And it doesn't mean I'm I'm perfect. I was, I was on a church service once and someone was saying, like, when you see Sister Johnson, you know, you may be changing. And I'm like, listen. I might have fornicated last night. Y'all don't know. <laughs> like, come on now. Like, that doesn't mean that I'm not a person, which is why I'm so drawn to the people in the Bible, because reading them and looking at them as flesh and blood has, re- has changed my life tremendously. And let you me know I have a relationship with God. I mean, think about it. David killed a man so he could have sex with his wife. And he's referred to as a man after God's own heart. Right. I think I'm good. I think I'm good with God.
1: <laughs> right. If those are some of the standards in the Bible, we might be okay, right?
2: I might be good. I might be good.
1: But you know it what's interesting about uh you breaking down your prophetic gifts is because one of the, the things I've discussed in conversation with people and you know, growing up in church and encountering all manner of prophets, um, is that there's I think there was always a segment this way, but it it has expanded over time, and that is the gift of prophecy has been monetized, sensationalized, and weaponized in 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 various settings and formats. And um, one of the things that I took with me moving out of the Pentecostal church and into the non-denominational church, church and learning about fivefold ministry is that when you have the gift of prophecy, what that is, is the ability to call people out and to call things out. And we've turned it into when is the next good thing going to happen to me? When am exactly. I going to get the new car? When am I going to get the new house, new job? When is my husband coming, et right. cetera? But the real gift involves sometimes getting a download of exactly what you said, very heavy information uh, and, and shining a light on things that people may not realize about themselves, pathologies, experiences, et cetera. Uh, but we've we've come to a place as believers where, you know, well, if I just write this check and I get in this line, perhaps I can get a word and, you know, live another day to keep believing.
2: And that's not what it is at all. That's not what it is. And I think that, I think that first of all, I think the church is failing and I don't care what religion it is. I think the church is failing. And I I say that having come from, attended several churches, been a member of several churches, haven't been a Sunday school teacher, haven't been a church secretary, haven't done, you know, gotten to know the intricacies of the church. And when I say the church, what I mean is the organizational structure, because they got to get bodies in to make the church run to make money, right? I don't need that, right? If nobody, this is, which is why I give away so many copies of my books. I don't need the money from that book to renew my faith in God to make me know that God is God. I don't need I, I don't need that and I don't need to guilt someone into buying my book or into believing what I say about God. I am called to take those people in the Bible and apply them to our everyday life and here's a simple um example I like to use the example of Sarah and and I see it in, the, like, we, we like to judge, we, we not only judge modern day people, we judge people in the Bible as well, right? And so it's like, you know, one of the things that people, Sarah gets a lot of flack for, because she gave this woman to her husband to have a baby, and she didn't believe God, and she didn't trust God. Well, if you read the scriptures, first of all, you will see that it was called the blessing of Abraham, not the blessing of Sarah. Mm -hmm. She was very fully aware during biblical times that men could have more than one wife. That promise did not have to be fulfilled through her. We tend to look at things through our society view, and that's a backwards view of, of the Bible. We, one man, one wife, right? And so if our husband is blessed, we're blessed by Abraham. The blessing of Abraham specifically said the blessing of Abraham. That's number one. Number two, after they lived after the flood. After the flood, the life expectancy was 120 years. So put yourself in a position of Sarah, who's 90 years old. So say, and she's expecting she only has another 30 years to live. Not only is she past age of childbearing, but she also may live for another 30 years or so, which means she may, if she has a child, she may only get to spend 30 years a different perspective. It doesn't mean that she didn't believe in God. She didn't have faith in God. What if she felt like we do sometimes, right? That's the humanness in her. That's his promise to Abraham. It wasn't until the angel came to her and said, you're going to get pregnant. But all before that, it was the blessing of Abraham. I'm going to take you to the land and your seed is going to be like the grains of the sand. That was all to Abraham. That wasn't to Sarah. It wasn't until the angel came to her a year before and said, you're going to be pregnant. But all this time, she'd been hearing the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham. She, She was human, just like us. So I think that sometimes even, which is why I don't talk a lot about theology. About the people of the Bible. I'm not heavy into theology. I know who God is. I know what God does. I know what He says I can do. I know what He expects of me. And, and it's not deeper than that for me.
1: And you know, um, it's it's interesting because I've been reading all of the conversations online about some of the recent scandals with really high profile, uh high profile ministers, which we won't name on the show. Right. Uh, but, right. well, one of the things DeMarcus and I sort of chuckle about is You know, we've moved into the era of like skinny jeans ministry where like, you know, you dress (laughs) hip and you have like the fly stage and the lights and the graphics and we're all tech savvy and church has gone digital. And all of that is great, right? It's all, it's a marketing tactic to bring people in and everybody wants to appear to be progressive and forward thinking. Um, but the integrity issues that continue to rear their ugly heads, Um, and you know, this idea of people being called hypocrites all the time online, it takes me back to what you witnessed as a child, the hypocrisy, uh, in the faith and what we continue to see as adults, right? Just a lack of authenticity and a a lack uh, of integrity. And this idea that if you're in a position of leadership, you have to present a certain way and then you live how you want to live, you know, behind closed doors, which is a lot of that I think is what drives young people away who grew up and, and sort of witnessing that. So in your journey, you know, growing up, did you say, I can't wait to get out of here? Like, I can't wait to of this church out of
2: this home. Are you focused on that? So when I was 15 is when I officially became baptized as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. But by that time, I was what was referred to as a full-time pioneer because I love the Bible and God and I love going to people. I had gone to this school to, to train people. And once I started seeing the hypocrisy, like once I really started seeing the hypocrisy, I wrote a letter. I, I, I tried to engage with the elders, but I'm a young girl. So it's like, what are you, what's happening in your house? Like literally we would try to have family Bible study. And I would say to my stepfather, who's the head of the house, but that's not what the Bible said. Like, that's not what that means. And literally our Bible study would end up with the elders coming to our house to put me in my place. So it taught me to shut up, you know, around authority, you know, but it's like, but God, I know, I, like I struggled for so long with like, but I know God and, and why won't they let me, you know? And so I wrote a letter to the society. So like, listen. This is what's going on in our Kingdom Hall, and I know y'all love Jehovah God, and you know whatever. And they wrote a letter back to me, and they copied the elders and said, "You need to have a conversation with them." So I was ready to tap out. I was ready to tap out. And the other thing that was happening was there was a man who was like a father figure to me. Again, discernment. He was like a father figure to me, and I at 17. And by that time, he was at one point he was the presiding. Elder overseer and he had cancer and he was an advocate for me. Like he wanted me to graduate school early. Like he really, really was was the only advocate I had. And his daughter despised me because she was the only child. And I did not know. I was a kid that everybody's parent was saying, Why can't you be like her? So what would happen is I literally would be called before elders because they were telling my mom that I was sneaking out of my house at night to go to parties. And I'm like, but mom, you, you, you live with me, right? Like that's not happening. And they did everything to make me, you know, the bad person. It's like, I'm just, you know, trying to be me. And so I remember wanting to leave, but not to leave the religion. I felt I wanted to leave so I could serve Jehovah the way that I wanted to serve. Mm. And so when I, when I did leave home, when I actually, so this is what happened. When I first, I got two jobs. I got a second job and when I got a second job and there's so much to that, so many layers to that, but I got a second job. I was told that I was being worldly because I was, was not devoting enough time to the ministry. And I remember I left home. She was very clear. She felt like Jesus stayed at home. He he was 30 years old and I needed a man to take care of me. And I was just so never that my mother never worked. And I would, to me, that just didn't, right. Like, no, I'm not going to somebody for allowance. I want, you know, my own money. And so when I moved out, I stopped going to the kingdom hall. And then I got pregnant with my daughter Mm. and I felt like, okay, I have to be an adult. I got to be responsible. This child needs some structure. And I tried to go back and they kicked me out. Mm. They disfellowshipped me and me getting disfellowshipped, my family disowned me. Wow. My mother wanted to have nothing to do with me. And it was difficult because remember, I grew up within this, the confines of this religion and all of my friends were Jehovah's witnesses, right? Everyone I had known since I moved to New Jersey at the age of seven or eight years old were Jehovah's witnesses. I didn't really have friends in the world. And now I'm pregnant and literally by myself in the world starting mm-hmm. over. And, and not having any knowledge of the world, like trusting people, because I trusted all Jehovah's witnesses, you know, really, really some transitional years for me. And I kept trying to go back and I kept trying to go back. And then I realized, I tried to go back three times. And then I realized either I believed in God or not. But during that time, it was hard for me to pray to God. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Because I felt like my mother wouldn't Contact my grandmother. She wouldn't give me my grandmother's address because she told me that I was an embarrassment and that my grandmother would be ashamed of me because how could I let this happen? So I felt that way about myself for a long time, even until my later years in life. I had to go to counseling some of that, you know, very, very low self esteem and uh, self esteem and unworthiness in my life. But at some point, I just felt like, no, I believe God like I know God and, and God would give me these signs and drop these things of discernment in my life. And, and I just knew that God was God. And so for, I I went to churches for a little while, but I just, for a long time, I was like, okay, I'm like Elijah in the desert, you know, by myself, you know, feeding on what, what God has for me. And that has been my mainstay, my relationship with God. I'm not perfect. I'm, far, far from perfect, far, far, far far from perfect. I'm a perfectly imperfect work of art in progress. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's,
1: it's interesting because to me, being disfellowshipped and everything that comes with that makes perfect sense because similar things happen, right? In, In apostolic and Pentecostal faith, you get a divorce, they don't want anything to do with you, you know, what have you. But people who didn't grow up in that, it probably sounds incredibly insane.
2: Um, a lot of people, no one believed in me. I had this one friend who I was homeless and I was in a shelter and I had to take my daughter to, to stay at my mother's house. And my mother said, the baby can come, but you can't come. And my friend said, no, that's not right. My friend went to my mother's house and my mother said to her, no, she cannot come. My friend was crying. She took me to her house and she was there with her mother. She was like, mommy, her mother said no. Her mother, like she has no, she couldn't, absolutely could not believe it. And here's the irony. Years later, when my mother developed breast cancer the first time, um, actually the anniversary because we found out she had breast cancer the day before 9-11. My 9-11 story is crazy. And um, I was, I have five siblings. I was the only one she told. Mm. And so I would take her back and forth to the doctor and I would care for her. I never knew until my mom got breast cancer the second time that none of my siblings knew about the first time. It was natural for them not to be around because I'm disfellows. Mm. So they can't be around me. And it wasn't until years later, I had a conversation with my second sister, the knowing, the discernment. I said to my sister, because after, also after my mom was declared cancer free the first time, she told me she could no longer associate with me.
0: Wait, what? Yes, yeah,
2: yes. Yeah. And when I took her to the doctor, I was in the back seat, like driving Miss Daisy. I mean, she was in the back seat and I was in the front, like driving Miss Daisy. And I'll never forget one time we went to the doctor and the doctor said to her, This is your daughter? And my mother barely wanted to answer the question. And she said, She's beautiful and she's here with you because I would take off of work and go to every appointment. The doctors would call me. and I was very actively involved and I had no idea. And the second time my mother had cancer, by that time I was trying to reestablish my relationship with um, one of my siblings, my youngest sister. And I said to her, I said, I need you to ask mommy a question for me. I said, ask her if she had cancer, would she tell anyone? I said, because she's having pain breathing in her chest and in her back. And my sister assumed I had spoken to my mother, and I hadn't. And so my sister called me back, and my mother gave her some vague answer. And I said, mommy has cancer. Mm. And... I said, we need to go see her and we need to go see her soon. So we went. I had written my mother a 12-page letter. And basically the letter was talking about my childhood. It was just everything I need to say to her. And at the end of the letter I said, I forgive you and I love you because I do believe that religion saved her life. So I'm not mad at that. Like I'm glad that I was raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses. That taught me to study the Bible the way that I do, you know. So when my mother saw me, she said, I don't want to see her. She wrote me this letter. And when I looked at my mother again discernment and knowing the first thing that came out of my mouth to my sister was like, Oh my goodness, this is worse than the first time, the last time. And she has six months. Mm -hmm. And my sister said, what do you mean the first time? I said, you didn't, you never knew mommy. had. They never knew. They never knew. And it wasn't until after my mother's, we were at the house. I didn't go to my mother's funeral. I felt like I didn't want to draw the attention to her, me being disfellowshipped and it being a scene. I did not go to, I honored my mother even in her death. And, um, and we went to the house afterwards and my sister said to me, you said it, you said it. I said, what did I say? She said, you said she had six months and it was almost six months to the day. And when I said it, I didn't mean anything by it. I did. It literally was something that just organically came out of my mouth.
1: Wow. You know, there's something, um, that you brought up in one of your books, talks with God, 30 days of inspiration for entrepreneurs about, you know, many overachievers, dealing with imposter syndrome and from your perspective um, and your experience, you think some of that was an outgrowth of not being affirmed as a child. And I think a lot of people have that story and a lot of high achievers have that story because they grew up. And if we're just going to talk about black culture, you know, for a second in a lot of black households, there's a belief that you don't get praised for doing what you're supposed to do.
2: Right. Oh, oh, it's like that is an as an adult, I had to, and I, and I don't like to use the word regret, right? I like to say that we've learned lessons. And that's not a pride thing for me. It literally is about growth and, and, and progression. But and within my children, I can see some patterns that I adopted because of the way that I was raised. I, I know my mother, people would say to me, oh, she's beautiful. My mother would say, don't say that. Her head's going to get big. You know, um, I talk about how I was, I got a scholarship to to go to Gibbs college for four years. It was Catherine Gibbs and and it was two year school then, I think. And I couldn't go. And I didn't know because of, you know, people are like, well, why didn't you just go? Because I was raised in such a structure where you didn't step out independently and do things on your own. I would never, now I would have, yeah, I would have taken that scholarship and I would have ran with it, you know, but I didn't know. And, you know, the National Honor Society, my mother said, no, I couldn't be a member. You know, no one ever told me. I, I, my poem was, I was a first grader and my poem was in the school newspaper and it was only sixth graders that achieved that. But I wrote this poem because I got, I got caught with the cigarettes in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, you know, while they're waiting for my mom to come get me, They said, what do you like to do? I said, I like to write. And I wrote this poem and it was called me. And I don't remember what it was, but they put it in the school newspaper. And I don't no one ever. It was not until I was in my 30s that my best friend said to me, why don't you have a computer? I said, why do I need a computer? And he said, because you're a writer. That's just like duh, a plumber not having tools. It did not occur to me that I was a writer. I just did not know that I thought people wrote like I wrote. I thought it was just a natural thing. And that's the thing that happens too, right? So you think about the dynamic of not being celebrated in a Black household. It kind of makes you feel like, oh, so this is normal. There's nothing special about me or special about what I do. So that translates into imposter syndrome as an adult because you feel like, oh, everybody can, you know, everybody can, you know, can do this or I'm no big deal or You become hypercritical of yourself and your accomplishment.
1: Absolutely. And one other way that I think it manifests also is, you know, that parent-child dynamic, that should be the first example of unconditional love, affirmation, et cetera. And unfortunately, when you talk about post-traumatic slave syndrome and all the things that we've been through, you mentioned this uh, as well as in your book, The Inheritance generational curse of PTSD yes. all of those things and and how that impacts us oftentimes we're achieving out in the world, but then we get into romantic or intimate relationships and we expect a partner to now fill whatever void our parents left, which is a whole other disaster,
2: okay, so I'm gonna say this because I recently had an epiphany about this, and I was speaking to someone the other day, and um I was on a board of directors and I recently resigned the position and I'm, I'm, I'm resigning. I'm pulling back from a lot of things. I don't want to be strong anymore. Mm. I don't want to be superwoman anymore. I'm done with it. Like I don't need to prove to anyone who I am. Google me. I mean that in all sincerity, Google me. I've done the work. I've lived the life. I passed the test. I don't want to do, do anything to prove who I am anymore. I want to be as intentional as possible in my life. So I'm thinking about in terms of relationships, society teaches us that the woman is the backbone of the family.
0: Yes. Check,
2: check, check this out. Check this out. We came from Adam's rib. With a rib. You know the main difference between a rib and a backbone? What's that? A rib a rib can heal itself. Mm. Backbones do not. Society has taught us to be something in relationships that we were never, ever intended to be. Wow. It's not our responsibility to keep a man, to keep a family together. And if you read the Bible in terms of child rearing, It talks very specifically. The Bible gives very specific commands. Fathers do not exasperate your children. Fathers do not. The father was to take the lead in raising children. The woman was always created to be the helpmate, which means the man already had something, he brought something to the table, and he was already doing the work. We live in a culture where women feel like we have to prove ourselves to get the prize of the man. My build the boo days are over. Okay,
1: so this
2: was not on my agenda to discuss, <laughs> but this is so
1: timely um, because I've been having this conversation with a lot of Black women, um, particularly the over 35 set, you know, which I've fallen to and women who are either still really
2: single. Do. Yeah, I, or I, go ahead. I'm 56 years old.
1: Oh, first of all, let's talk about how that melanin does not crack ever. And (laughs) and the running joke that I also have about Black women is they could be like 29 or 63 and you may not even know which.
2: (laughs) I'm just saying, just saying,
1: just saying. So, but talking to girlfriends and people on this show who are either divorced and looking again or still trying to find a partner, running into an issue where they do feel like it's a -A Build-A-Bear project, right? Like, They find somebody and maybe I can craft him into who I want or need him to be. And
2: women are doing it every day. And and guess what? They can have that. They can have that. I'm not doing that anymore. We buy into the potential. And here's the the problem. The reason we buy into the potential is because we know what we do with our potential. We know the magic that we have. We know the magic that we make, right? The problem is that build can't do what you do. And mm-hmm. even when you push him to do it, he will only get so far and eventually you will end up disappointed because no matter what anyone says, I'm independent, all this, whatever, it is our natural desire. Here we go again. And, and y'all might not like this. It is our natural desire to want to have a man as our head. In fact, if you go to the book of Genesis, that was the curse that was placed upon the woman. Your desire for your husband will be stronger. It's in the Bible. I'm just telling mm. you. That was, the, that was the effects of sin. So there are some people who feel like they don't want a man. I, I go back and forth. I had a, a conversation with um, a couple friends this weekend about relationships because, you know, we talk about it. And one of my friends said to me, <laughs> she said to me, I was saying, I said, I got to be honest. I love black love. I absolutely love Black love. And i dated outside of races, you know, out, outside of my race. And Black brothers, I love y'all. And listen, if you're out there, hit me up, let me know. But I'm just saying, what I have constantly found myself doing is minimizing myself mm. so that they can feel secure, which causes me to be insecure. And I don't want to minimize myself anymore. I want to be all that God has called me to be. So, and it's not about, it's not solely about finances. It's not solely about career or work or, or, or that. For me, honestly, and I had this very real conversation with a friend, of, one friend the other day. And I said, spiritually, I want a spiritual mate. I want someone I can have these conversations with. I'm not trying to be a pastor's wife because I don't want that responsibility. Mm -hmm. And then I had a conversation with another friend and she said, well, let me ask you this. What if he is everything you want him to be, but would you settle? And then she said, oh, I know that's what dust does because that's what I see all the time. Never settle. That's what dust does. And I deserve to be treated better than dirt. So. It's really a hard dynamic. I went, I was once celibate for eight years mm-hmm. and, and didn't intentionally, it just, I was raising my son and I was focused on different things. And and I don't, I really don't regret that at all. It's what has built some of my strongest character. Um. And I had some of my most amazing experiences in life during that time. Do I desire a mate? Yes. Am I going to say, I'm lonely? I want help paying these bills. So let me just holler at or let I guess what I tried it that way worked. And so what's working for me right now is I'm by myself and I'm okay and I'm okay with that. And I truly do believe like I go saying to one of my friends I don't know if there's a person for me. It's a big, big world. I don't know if there's a person for me because I'm still learning and growing myself and, and, and learning about myself. And the one thing that I do know that I'm not somebody who's dating just for fun and games. Right, I don't need any more male friends. I, I I don't need that. I don't need to be anybody's secret. I don't need to be any of that. What my soul craves and yearns for is someone to grow with God, and for someone to be someone that I can rely on and I can depend on. Men shed tears. I'm not mad at any of that, but I need to know that if I come to you with the situation. And you're saying, baby, I got it. You got it and it's done. I don't want to hear nothing else about it. Like it needs to be done because that's who I am. That's who I am. I do what I say I am going to do. I am who I say I am. There's no secrets. There's no hidden agenda. There's none of that with me. So, you know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, my life is so full with so many things. I'm good. I'm good. And
1: and I just want to say this because I think men hear these conversations and they reduce it to money, right? Well, exactly.
2: I- specifically, it's not money. It's not. It's not money. It's not your job. It's not. Um, It's a ev- things happen to people, right? Listen. I've been homeless. I've been on the verge of homelessness. I've been a responsible adult and then get hit with an eviction. Life happens. Coronavirus happens. Like, no, none of that. It's about your, it really is about your character and how you show up. And I require very little. And I think that intimidates me. And this is what my best friend told me, he's a male. He said to me, he said, the problem is you intimidate men. Like they look at you and they hear you speak and you speak with authority and confidence. And I said, yeah, but what they don't know inside is, okay, let me do this interview right now because I need to do this interview. <laughs> so when this interview is over and before it happened, I'm upstairs chilling Netflix and chill or in my prayer room because, you know, that's what I do. So I just feel like just as intimidating as you think I am by you what makes you think I'm not intimidated by you or have my concerns about, we're all people, we're all flesh and blood. But what I'm not about to do is to be one of 50 Millie's and Karen's and Betty's and whatever, you know what I mean? I'm not one of men, I am that valuable. Google me, I am Absolutely.
0: that valuable.
1: And one of the things I think, the, a revelation I had recently is, because I think I have similar struggles, Um, is getting caught up in you know men saying, but some of them are savvy. Right. And and some right. of them think they're in touch um, and have done the work, but not they're not necessarily there yet. So I've had men say, you know, I would never try to dim your light. Just volunteer that. Right. Because I'm a, I'm a big believer and I'm not going to tell you everything I don't want. I'm just going to see what you have to say about what you have to offer. So I've had men say I would never. Um, try to dim your light. I I see who you are and the things that you're doing and your ambition and the show and this, and I would never try to dim that. And what I learned and had to learn is that you could not have an intention as a man to dim the light and still have an inability to stand in it.
2: Can you say that again for the people in the back? Because they need to hear that again. Yes. Because that right there is the issue. And they think, like I've heard the word, Santerra. Did you think I intentionally did that? Come on. You know how I feel. You know I care. Do you think I intentionally? And you know what my reply to that is? You didn't intentionally hurt me or or intend to cause me harm, but you didn't intentionally raise me up either. Mm, That's a word. So it's not that you weren't intentional, that you were unintentional in what you did. It's that you were not unintentional. In the other area where you should have been, just as your lack of int- your lack of intentionality is just as harmful as your intentionality. We need to be more intentional. And you're right, you can't stand in that light. It's it's going to be an issue. I um I dimmed my light for so like I got out of the music industry mm. for a relation because of a relationship, and I remember running into somebody. Years later, and they said, so I know you're a multimillionaire by now. And I said, no. And it was somebody who knew me from the industry. And they said, you're not. And I said, no. And, you know, it's like I, I, I posted something about that the other day. And, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, and I'm good. You know, I, I do believe I am right where God would have me. But at this stage in my life, because I've done the work, I've gone to counseling. I don't have a problem with saying I've going to counseling, I've gone to therapy. I don't have a problem with being transparent about my struggles with depression. I don't have an issue with any of that. I need a mate that's gonna be just as transparent. But more importantly, don't be, if you want me to be compassionate towards you, I need to know what I'm really being compassionate about, right? Don't ask me to be compassionate because your, your ex-girlfriend broke up with you because you were trash. And the way she broke up with you, you didn't like it. You were trash, bro. That's why she treated, that's, that's why you got the response you got from her. Stop seeking sympathy for that. But now let's talk about how behavior prompted that response and how you can fix that in you. So then you could realize that even your approach to me about what you want compassion about is not even genuine or there. And let's go to counseling together. That's what you need. Let's go to counseling and sit in on a session with you. And if you don't want me to know your secrets, okay, but somebody needs to know. Here's the other thing that, um, that is going to be very important for me going forward. Um, A person in my life once said they were here at the house with a bunch of my friends and he asked them the question, you guys hold each other accountable? And they were like, listen, is like our girl, but I'm gonna tell you right now, like we do that. We hold each other accountable. I think, and he was saying that he wished more Black men held each other accountable. And I thought about that and I'm not gonna lay that on the feet of Black men. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna lay that on the feet of people who have not built a support system and who have not been transparent. Sometimes you don't have a support system because you're not letting people in. You're not letting people in and they don't know who they who you really are. So no one's invested in you and your future and your welfare. And your, it doesn't mean that they don't care. You're not giving them the permission to care. And permission to care sometimes meaning be able to say to you, listen, um, that right there, you need to let that go because that's not going to serve you. This is, you need to be willing to hear that. I cannot think of anyone who I call a friend, like Tico and I, I can't think of anyone that I call a friend that I can't call them out on anything. And I remember one time Tekoa, I remember one time I was texting with something and I said, but we're not going to talk about that. And she said, she picked up the phone real quick. She said, that's how we doing now? I can't call you out. I was like, no, I meant when you get here, we'll have the conversation about it. I said, like, we're not going to talk about it now because that's important. Transparency, the older I get, the more transparent I get. Um, if you got secrets, that's a breeding gap, ground for trouble. Secrets right. just breed all kinds of issues. And I want no parts of that. There's a difference between being a private person. Because as transparent as I am and as much as I share, I share only for the purpose of testimony. But I'm a very private person. I give very few people access to my personal life, my personal space. If you ever set foot in my house, you're an incredible person because I do not allow people in my personal space. I just don't. So I think that. Is that in the in the male in, in, in black male culture? And I'm not saying male culture. I'm just talking about what I know. For y'all say I'm a racist or whatever. I'm just saying that in our community, one of our issues is that we need more transparency. And even before you can become transparent with a woman, you need to become transparent with yourself. And sometimes that means letting the homies know. Listen, I struggle. And here's a powerful thing about transparency. Transparency brings compassion and um and it develops relationship because sometimes that dude is struggling with the same thing you're struggling with and you just don't know about it or he has overcome that thing and you don't even know about it so you're depriving yourself of help that you need and i'm eternally grateful and blessed for my sister circle i really i really really am